1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we'll speak with David Cole, the nation's legal affairs correspondent and the ACLU's legal director. We'll ask him to respond to conservative commentators arguing that the courts have gone too far and been too bold in rejecting Trump's travel ban. Also, Britain votes on June 8th. Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn has been campaigning for a complete rejection of market economics, and Britain faces some big decisions about Europe in the wake of Trump's troubled trip there last week. Paul Mason will comment. But first, Trump's troubles continue to grow. Investigations by the FBI and Congress and talk about impeachment. He's already the most unpopular president in modern history. How is he likely to defend himself as the evidence of crimes becomes stronger and his defenders become fewer? For comment, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He writes regularly for The Nation and other publications. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and his new book, which will be published by Nation Books in September, is called Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. Well, remind us where Trump stands after his return from his first trip overseas as president. Remind us what's becoming the new normal for the Trump White House.
2: Well, the new normal is absolute chaos, based around both anonymous leaks that seem to be coming daily to the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, and so on, but also beyond the chaos, a real sense of dysfunction, that this is an administration that is besieged by crisis. It seems to increasingly be defined by crisis, and it's stumbling from one chaotic episode to another, whether it's the implication that very, very senior people in the White House were in some way colluding with Russia prior to the election, or whether it's the fact that they can't even keep Trump off, tweets long, off Twitter long enough to avoid diplomatic chaos with very, very close allies. And so the sort of new normal for the Trump administration, I think, is both chaos and also just utter destruction of values and of institutions and of alliances.
1: Well, before Trump took office, some pundits expressed the hope that he would mature in the White House, he would moderate his campaign style in view of the responsibilities of the office. Now we are, are being told that a new team will bring new discipline to the White House. How do, successful do you think that will be?
2: The short answer is not successful, because the chaos emanates from the top. You, you can't create a better team by getting rid of, I don't know, Sean Spicer or even Jared Kushner and leaving in place a president who is both mentally incompetent to be the commander in chief and morally incompetent. And even if they wanted to, they're not going to find the caliber staff because one of the things that happened with Nixon is after Nixon became this sort of toxic political figure, they found it very hard to get and to keep top people, but the difference is they already had a fully staffed administration. Nixon headed into a tailspin after several years as president. Trump has headed into a legal and moral tailspin almost immediately, which means that huge numbers of key positions are unfilled. And if you're a career lawyer, you're a career diplomat, you're a career public servant in any capacity, the idea of hitching yourself to an administration as rotten to the core as this one It's a very unappealing prospect, and so I think that this idea that they can somehow restaff with top-caliber people and get it all right, it's a real pipe dream. But I think a bigger worry is that they have no intention of getting this right by constitutional means. And you've actually seen over the last few days a series of really disturbing reports starting to come out about their strategy in the face of legal chaos. And one of the strategies that we're hearing is that they're going to hold these mass rallies And the only implication of holding these mass rallies is that they're going to try and use the intimidatory tactic of the mob to get around all of their constitutional woes at the moment. Now, just before we began talking, I was reading an article in the UK newspaper, The Guardian, and it was talking about the events up in Portland, Oregon, where two people were murdered by a neo-Nazi or a fascist fanatic when they tried to defend two Muslim women that he was attacking. And this has drawn worldwide condemnation, except it took Trump three or four days to even bother to condemn it in a tweet. He never made a public speech about it. He didn't make a public statement about it. He belatedly made this sort of begrudging tweet saying that it was wrong and that it had no place in America or something like that. But then the county chair of the Republican Party up in Montano County and in Portland said on Tuesday that the party might start resorting to private security from the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, which are these extremist militias, so that they can hold these rallies and so that they can um, hold events, these um, so-called free speech events being pushed by the alt-right in Portland this Sunday. Now, the idea of a mainstream political party in the United States embracing militias for private or paramilitary security that's extraordinary, because paramilitary security organizations, that's what the Nazis had with the stormtroopers. Yes. It's what ended up being death squads in Latin America in the 1980s. I mean, once you go down the road of private paramilitary militia security, heavily armed private security, you're outside all constitutional limits. And that's the real fear.
1: We're talking now about the news this week and last week. I think we can assume that things will not get better for Trump. That the new normal is they will get worse. There'll be every day there'll be more evidence of his criminal deeds, of national security uh, violations by his campaign staff and his White House staff, uh, maybe by himself. We've seen how he's reacted since he became president. If you were to speculate on where he will turn, what he will do, uh, a week, a month. couple of months from now, what do you think uh, is possible that he will attempt? What do you think is likely?
2: There's a real danger that he goes down a sort of mob intimidation route, that he realizes that his power lies not in Congress, his power lies not in the courts, but his power lies with these very angry and energized and oftentimes armed crowds. And once you make that decision, if you decide you're going to counter the special prosecutor or counter a congressional investigation by whipping up a mob, which they've certainly been talking about. If you read the conversations that have been going on about their strategy, once you unleash that kind of force into the heart of American politics, all bets are off. And so when I look over the next months or even years, it seems to me that, you know, by all normal measures, Trump is a mortally wounded political creature. He's somebody who's lost If he ever had, he's lost all moral credibility. He's being protected up to a point by Republicans in Congress who think they can use him even though they don't like him. By all rational measures, this is a deeply, deeply devastated presidency. But Trump doesn't behave or abide by limits. He he doesn't behave rationally or abide by the limits of rational governance. And the danger is that he becomes increasingly erratic, authoritarian, that he might create some kind of Reichstag fire moment, some kind of emergency to either personalize power or to declare some form of emergency rule. Now, whether or not he'll succeed, I actually doubt he'll succeed. I I think that the way the population in this country has been energized to fight back against Trump is actually spectacular. But I think he might try that. And I think that that's something that progressives and, frankly, anybody who's caring about constitutional government at this point should have on their radar over the coming weeks and months. And yet,
1: despite these uh, frightening possibilities and and predictions, uh, you write in The Nation that Trump's increasing troubles are a cause for celebration. Why is that?
2: Well, I think that he's always been an illegitimate president. I think that his behavior on the campaign trail, his willingness to resort to just scandalous levels of demagoguery, his willingness to stir up racial hatreds, religious animosities, um, his behavior towards women, towards the disabled. You can go down the list and at every step of the way, he has dishonored himself and he has dishonored the institution of the presidency. And he's also made America look very, very small and irrational on the world stage. And if you look at the number of years and decades it took for America to come to occupy that position of influence globally, and you look at the way in which Trump in the period, not of years, but of months, is squandering that, destroying the moral capital America's built up. It seems to me that it has to be a cause for celebration when a president such as himself is diminished. And of course, it will be a cause for absolute celebration when he is no longer president. And That's... I do believe there's a strong likelihood he'll be impeached at some point. But in the interim, as we move down that road in impeachment, even if they began the process tomorrow, which they won't, it would take many, many, many months And what I was writing about in that article is that during that time, there is a real danger that he behaves like a cornered animal. And cornered cornered animals can lash out in any and every direction. And that's the danger that we're dealing with for someone like Trump, that his whole life has been about power and been about getting his way. And he doesn't play by limits. He doesn't play nice. He doesn't respect rules. And all the evidence we've seen of how he behaves is that the more he feels cornered, the more dangerous he becomes. And so, yes, it's a cause for celebration that he's been weakened. Yes, it's a cause for celebration that the courts have stood up to him. Yes, it's a cause for celebration that there are now congressional and independent council investigations of his team. But that doesn't mean that everything is suddenly right in the world again. We've still got to be extremely vigilant as to the behaviors that he unleashes on this country.
1: Sasha Abramsky, his article, Trump is a Cornered Megalomaniac, appears at TheNation.com. John Dean called it a bracing analysis. Sasha, thanks for talking with us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks so much.
1: The courts have taken a strong and virtually unanimous stand against Trump's travel ban, ruling that it's a ban on Muslims and therefore prohibited under the Constitution. But conservatives have started pushing back, including conservatives who don't support Trump. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, the author most recently of the book Engines of Liberty, The power of citizen activists to make constitutional law. And most important, he is National Legal Director of the ACLU. We reached him today in Washington. David Cole, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Well, you argued on our show before Trump took office that the federal courts were likely to reject any attempt by Trump to ban Muslims from entering the country. I was skeptical, but it turns out you were right, and most recently, the chief judge in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals wrote last week... That the second version of Trump's travel ban quote, "drips with religious intolerance, animus, and discrimination." Close quote. This was an ACLU case. Uh, remind us what this case was about and and how we got to this point.
3: Well, so it's a it's a um, a fairly long uh, story, but the short version is uh, Trump promised to ban Muslims uh, when he was running for president. Uh, one of the first steps he took as president, one w- week after he was sworn into office, was to um, ban entry from seven Muslim-majority countries. Um, uh, and it was explained by uh, in, by Mr. Trump himself and by Rudy Giuliani that he switched from a focus on Muslims, qua-Muslims, to um, territories where there were a lot of Muslims, because Uh, Giuliani uh, told him that that was the way you could get away with it. Um, We challenged, we at the ACLU challenged that um, uh, first version of the travel ban in the courts and got the first injunction against uh, the ban. Uh, Other cases soon followed, and it was ultimately struck down as unconstitutional by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, Trump made all kinds of noises along the way, calling the one of the judges a so-called judge and uh, tweeting that he would uh, see you in court, uh, apparently not understanding that he was already being uh, dragged into court himself, uh, and, but then eventually uh, decided not to uh, uh, seek a Supreme Court review of the validity of his original ban and instead to issue a second ban, uh, Muslim Ban 2.0, we call it, because it's really very similar to the first. It it, it takes out Iraq, um, but it still focuses on six countries that are Muslim-majority countries. They range from 92% Muslim to 99.7% Muslim, and it bars entry uh, of anyone from those countries, regardless of whether they have any connection to terrorism uh, whatsoever. Uh, And so we challenged that, uh, uh, the the second version is unconstitutional as well, and prevailed in the district court uh, in Maryland and and last week prevailed in the U.S. Court of Appeals. And the argument that the courts made uh, was uh, that this was a violation of the Establishment Clause because its purpose and intent was to uh, uh, denigrate Islam to target Muslims as a group. And you can't use the immigration power uh, in a way that violates the Establishment Clause. And the Establishment Clause requires that the government maintain denominational neutrality. It can't favor or disfavor any specific religion. And because in enacting this particular ban, he targeted for disfavor uh, Muslims, uh, the courts have thus far uh, struck it down.
1: But now conservatives, including some who are not supporters of Trump, uh, this includes an op-ed columnist of the New York Times, uh, others at the National Review and at Fox News, have started arguing that the courts have gone too far, that Trump's executive order on travel is not a good idea, but it is not a Muslim ban and on its face looks entirely constitutional because the president has broad powers to restrict the entry of non-citizens, and an executive order restricting travel from a specific set of countries would normally pass muster because constitutional guarantees do not normally apply to foreign nationals. What do you say to that argument? Dutat's argument is
3: he seems to find troubling the fact that The court, in declaring this unconstitutional, looked not just at the face of the ban, but looked at the context in which it arose. Um, Yes. What did did Trump say outside of the four corners of the document, which was written by his lawyers? and, And the court said, well, what he said outside of the four corners was that this was intended uh, to target Muslims, he said it when he was a candidate. Uh, when he signed the first version of the travel ban, he looked up and said, "We all know what that means to the to the uh, to the to the cameras." When the set when the first travel ban was struck down, uh, he said that the second ban, the second version, which he um, signed, was essentially the same policy as the first. He left up on his campaign uh, website. The, the, the vow that he would uh, ban all Muslims uh, long after he had taken office and only took it down when when the Fourth Circuit argument was uh, underway, essentially. Uh, and so the court looked at things beyond the four corners of the document. Dutat seems to have a problem with that, but that's what the law requires. The Establishment Clause says it's not permissible for the government to take action that is intended to or sends a message of denigrating a particular religion. So, And the court has said, you must look at the whole context to determine what would an objective observer, uh, looking at all the facts, conclude about this government actions. Dutat's argument is essentially, he's parroting the government's argument. And the government's argument is, close your eyes to what the world sees, look only at the four corners of this document drafted by our lawyers, and if it doesn't have the word Muslim in it, it's not a Muslim ban. That's that's an argument that essentially says, defer blindly to the president, even when we all know what he is intending to do. And the courts have thus far refused uh, to close their eyes to what the world sees.
1: At the National Review, a writer named David French, who is also no Trump admirer, challenges the argument that you've just made. He says what the courts are saying here is that this president cannot do things that would be perfectly legal if any other president did them because the courts claim to know his real motivation based on statements he made during the presidential campaign before he became president, and this is bad law, and it's also unwise and dangerous uh, to say that there are laws that apply only to Trump because of what he said before he became president. What do you say to that objection?
3: So the laws apply to everybody, and they apply equally to everybody, And um, but, but sometimes the law requires uh, that you look at the intent and purpose behind an action. So you know if the New York Times fires a black employee because he's not uh, performing uh, uh, you know up to snuff, it's legal. If they take the exact same action and they say, "We really don't want blacks in the uh, in, in the newsroom, uh, that exact same action, is illegal because it discriminates on the basis of race. And similarly, uh, with government actors, if a government actor takes action that is neutral on its face, then the, you, under the Establishment Clause, you don't end the inquiry at that point. You ask rather, well, let's look at the full context here. What has the government said? What, what were they trying to do here? Um, what would an objective observer conclude from the government's action, taking all the facts into account, not just the four corners of the document, but all the facts. And why is that? Because the effect of the order on religion and on religious freedom is an effect that derives not from the just the formal words in the order, but from everything that people know about why the order was put in place. And, and when you look at those facts, it's quite clear that it was designed to target and denigrate Muslims. And only if you close your eyes to reality could you possibly uphold uh, the the the, the, uh, the order. And that's the government's argument. You, the courts should close their eyes to reality. I, and I just don't understand why these columnists think it's a good thing for courts to close their eyes to reality and why they think it's somehow odd that the same action taken for legitimate purposes is valid and uh, and taken for impermissible purposes race racial uh, animus or religious animus uh, is is not valid that's that's just you know constitutional law
1: 101 They they also argue these conservative uh, columnists argue that This is a dangerous course for the courts to take because there's no way for Trump to tailor his policies to fit existing precedents. And therefore, given his personality and everything we know about his history, uh, his flaws of temperament, his character, make it much more likely that we will have a true constitutional crisis where the executive challenges, seeks to undermine and reject the authority of the courts. You've written about a constitutional crisis in the wake of the firing of James Comey, but they say this would be a real constitutional crisis if the president defied the courts or set out to uh, ignore or undermine the courts, and, and we should do everything we can to avoid that. I wonder what you say to that argument.
3: Look, the, the, the court's role in our constitutional system is to check executive overreach. And every time they check executive overreach because it violates a constitutional principle there is in theory the risk that the executive branch will refuse to comply with the court's orders that's always the case but if 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 our our position were well jesus if courts tell the president he can't do something he might just go ahead and do it anyway and and, and create a constitutional crisis, and therefore courts should not tell presidents they can't do things that are unconstitutional, then, we, then, then you would essentially neuter the courts. You would deprive the courts of the critical checking function that they play. You know, history tells us that courts have for 230 you know, years plus enjoined executive action uh, on the ground that it is unconstitutional. And many presidents have been very unhappy about that, but every one of them has complied with the court's orders. So I I don't see any evidence that Trump will not comply with the court's orders. I think it's irresponsible to suggest that courts should somehow close their eyes to to constitutional doctrine, ignore the rules that ordinarily apply out of fear that somehow this president will not abide by their orders. And, you know, you look, look at what happened with the first one. He issued it, several courts declared it unconstitutional, and he rewrote it. He didn't say, I'm gonna enforce it anyway, I'm gonna ignore the court's orders, he, 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 he rewrote it. He didn't rewrite it uh, effectively, um, but he's, he, he, he's not, he doesn't have a straitjacket on him. It doesn't, it, these decisions don't say the president can never do anything to try to protect our borders. What it says is he can't put in place a Muslim ban by calling it a territory ban, where he has made very clear that that's precisely what he um, uh, intended to do. So, you know, I I, I think the courts are doing what we expect them to do in a time of executive
1: overreach, which is to
3: hold the president to account. That's their job. And and it's all the more important with a president like uh, like uh, President Trump.
1: David Cole, he's National Legal Director of the ACLU, and you can read him at thenation.com. David, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you.
3: Always a pleasure. Thanks, John.
1: Britain's will head to the polls Thursday, June 8th. Theresa May, who took over as prime minister after the Brexit vote, will lead the Tories against Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. All this happens just a couple of weeks after Trump's troubled trip to Europe. For comment, we turn to Paul Mason. He's an award-winning broadcaster and writer on economics and social justice. He's written many books, most recently Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. He writes a weekly column for The Guardian. He spent 12 years as a BBC correspondent and was an award-winning broadcaster at Channel 4 News. He's also a contributor to The Nation. Paul Mason, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Trump met with NATO leaders last week, and afterwards, Angela Merkel said, quote, We Europeans truly have to take our fate into our own hands for the american listeners
4: i cannot stress enough trump's visit and the aftermath of it were absolutely catastrophic for transatlantic relationships nothing i I think of the depth of this has really come out in the american media you know trump basically annoyed the heck out of the people who matter in Europe, and that is the Germans and the French. And for Merkel to stand up and say, we're now on our own, you know, this is a country that 20 years ago hosted a large part of the United States Army and Air Force, Germany. For the Europeans to say, we're on our own, means that, first of all, you know, when Trump refused to reiterate NATO's so, so-called Article 5 commitment, which he was invited to do, this has been widely read as Trump basically saying, you know, if a country like Estonia or Poland or the eastern edge of, 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 uh, of Europe gets uh, the same treatment as Ukraine did from Vladimir Putin, we don't care, the Americans. That's the first problem. Uh, and the other thing is he's widely perceived as trying to actually disrupt the, the multilateral institutions that we here in Europe rely on, one of which is the European Union itself. But the other one, of course, is, is NATO. You know, NATO in Europe means multinational armed forces facing down on a border with a Russian armed force that that regularly exercises to invade europe that's what it means and during the cold war everyone seemed to understand that it is bizarre that trump you know is prepared to antagonize his european allies these are serious military powers in the french case a nuclear power um and um you know, what's the result been in international terms as well? We saw Macron, the newly elected president of France, go today and yesterday to Putin and and, and lay a, a very independent and and very tough line, uh, independent of Washington, saying basically to Putin, you know, if there is another chemical attack, we the French in Syria, we the French will start, you know, enforcing it. And we haven't really seen this in the post-1945 era you're beginning to see European foreign policy, diplomatic policy, military capability conceived independently of the United States, which is kind of what the outcome is going to be if your president starts to um, publicly
1: insult major countries that are part of the NATO alliance. What has Jeremy Corbyn said about Merkel's statement, we Europeans have to take our fate into our own hands? Look,
4: look here in the here in the United Kingdom. While we're fighting an election, the whole thing is being fought in the shadow of Brexit. We, the Brits, have to decide what kind of Brexit we want—whether we want a, a complete economic break or a soft economic break—and Corbyn's instincts are to collaborate as much as possible economically with the Europeans. But in in terms of foreign policy. I think Corbyn is effectively a multilateralist all along the line. Corbyn would want to try and seek some kind of negotiated peace in Syria, some kind of negotiated calm down in Ukraine and Crimea. And in other words, he's from that that wing of British politics that does want to see Britain stop pretending that it is in some kind of, you know, uh, mini, mini America, kind of mini United States that can, that can lay down the law to every other country in the world. So Corbyn would be seeking compromise in that situation. And, and I think that Merkel's statement is so shocking and so new that many of us here, you know, fighting this British election campaign have barely had time to think about it. We I think that we need to see where the dust settles between, uh, between Berlin and Washington before we make any big decisions.
1: What kind of campaign is Corbyn
4: running? Well, if I have just looking, looking in front of me uh, the poll like polling averages. And you'd have to say between the 18th of April when the election was called and now the campaign is pretty successful because he's gone from being on 25 percent of the vote to 35, 36, 37 in one poll, 38. So this is an incredible uh, surge in the space of four or five weeks. And the reason is simply that, at last, Corbyn was able to get full control of the party, was able to unleash a manifesto that really shocked people with its radicalism. So we're talking here about the nationalisation of the railway industry. We're talking about £50 billion worth of extra public spending on healthcare, on university tuition. And this really caught the imagination of people. Now, still, the Conservatives are... Way ahead of Labour, they're still probably about five, six points ahead of Labour. But we've got nine days to go, and um, all the momentum is within is with Corbyn's Labour Party. And this, for American listeners, this is as if the Democrats were led by Bernie Sanders. And I think we're having the kind of effect here. That would have happened in the United States had Sanders not only been picked for president, but controlled the Democratic National Committee, because this is effectively what Corbyn in British terms does. He runs the party. He has uh, control over the policy and he is the figurehead.
1: And what kind of campaign has Theresa May been running? The reason they
4: need this election is because she doesn't have a mandate for the kind of negotiation she wants to conduct on leaving the European Union. So Theresa May favours what's called a hard Brexit, which is really a very, very sharp break economically with Europe, and the threat to walk away without a deal. She has no mandate for that. So she she said to people, basically, lend me your votes, give me the strength to carry out a... uh, a strong negotiation uh, and kind of almost you know, rally round behind me. The problem is the only people who really did that are supporters of our alt-right. Our, there's a, a party called United Kingdom Independence Party. What's fairly clear is that many of its supporters have switched from that you know, right-wing, xenophobic, racist party back to the Conservatives. So her campaign has been successful in the sense that it has shored up the nationalist right, but it's done so by really turning that conservative party, which was in many senses the epitome of liberalism and moderation two years ago when it was run by David Cameron, uh, into quite a nasty right-wing, not exactly Trumpian, more like a sort of Ted Cruz-style or Paul Ryan-style right-wing conservative party.
1: And there was that horrifying terrorist attack in Manchester, usually terrorist attacks strengthened the right in our politics. Is it having that effect? Has it had that effect in Britain? No, it hasn't. And here's why. Because
4: the attacker was a British-born Libyan guy. Uh, And it turns out that when Britain and France led the bombing of Libya— uh, which led, of course, to the famous Benghazi incident that has dominated American politics. What happened was that the British intelligence services were, it now appears, sending British Libyans over to fight against Gaddafi. Uh, the, the, the the father of this attacker was one of them. And so the whole question mark has blown back onto Theresa May, who was the what we call the Home Secretary, the person in charge of domestic security here for seven years. You know, what were you doing? In addition... There have been very severe cuts in spending on both police and defence under the Conservative government. And again, Theresa May, now Prime Minister, was in charge of shrinking the police force by 19,000. I mean, they've shrunk the armed part of the British police force. You know, not all of our cops are armed, only specialist units. That armed part of the British police force was shrunk by 2,000. In other words, what would normally have been a kind of something that the right could say, well, we need a stronger state they're the people who've been cutting back our policing and defense capability. So I think the, the, the political response to it has been mixed. But it has to be said that, that it's put a real damper on the whole tenor of the debate, because this was a really serious attack. 22 people killed, many of them women and young girls at a pop concert. And there's been a pretty serious intelligence failure. But But nobody wants to point the finger at each other really politically over that until we see whether anybody politically is
1: culpable. So is Corbyn talking about uh, terrorism at all? What the right are trying to do is to say Corbyn is soft on terrorism. But he he just fronted that
4: up and stood up and basically said, look, we have to— have a new approach to foreign policy, because uh, there is clearly a link between the kind of foreign wars we've been fighting, the bombing of uh, Middle Eastern countries, and the fact that we can't seem to protect ourselves against terror. It's not the pure blowback thesis that that says, you know, if you invade the Middle East, you're bound to get terrorism. It's a more sophisticated position that says, if you're gonna carry out these wars in the Middle East, you better have a domestic anti-terror Apparatus that works, and we clearly don't.
1: The Socialist Party in France collapsed in this year's elections there. The polling data that you have quoted suggests that is not going to happen to Labour in Britain. Do you have any thoughts about the difference between the two countries and the left in, in each?
4: Well, look, what happened in France is that in the first round of the presidential election, a far left candidate got 19 percent. The Socialist Party, which had a fairly left-wing program, got 7 percent. And two tiny parties from the left got 1 percent each. Look, that's in the mid-20s. So it's the same phenomenon. This is against a kind of very resurgent centrism, a very resurgent Clinton-style centrism as well, which got also 25 percent in the first round. So We've got the same phenomena. That is, the radical left is usually able to get somewhere between 20 and 30%, and the kind of centrist left is usually be able to get another 25%. That's the situation in most countries. But in, the difference between Britain and France is, in Britain, we have the traditional socialist party has gone radical, whereas in in France, the, there was a new formation, the, the, the party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, which kind of outflanked the socialists to the left. We all along the line we are seeing the crisis for traditional moderate centrist social democracy very similar very similar in in in, in uh, tone to the crisis of what you might call Clint, Clinton 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 style democrat politics.
1: And what do you think is going to happen to the uh, moderates in the Labour Party in Britain are they going to stick with Corbyn? We've got nine days of the election left, and we're hoping we can make up that 5
4: 6% gap. If we do, it's game on, and we may be able to form some kind of a coalition government or an informal coalition government that replaces the Tories. That's what everybody's focused on right now. I'm certain that if Labour doesn't win, there'll be big recriminations from the right trying to get rid of Corbyn. But the Corbyn movement is about more than Corbyn. It's about a substantial shift of policy to the left. It is about a substantial break with traditional British foreign policy, more towards a multilateral peace-seeking role in the world. And it's also about democratising this institution of the Labour Party, putting it back into the control of working class and young people. And until that is over, you know, I for one wouldn't be wanting to see Corbyn move on, whether we win or lose the election. But he is 67, and I think, you know, if he doesn't win, this is probably the last election he should fight, uh, because it takes a you know it takes an energetic young person to go on fighting for these things. But I think the stature of Jeremy Corbyn in the past three weeks has risen massively. Once people can see him, because here in the United Kingdom we have a state-regulated TV service where there has to be balance, there has to be impartiality. Once people can see him through the impartial lens of TV, he, he's really popular. And, you know, it may, there may be a few kind of right-wing Labour MPs who want him to go. But I think the, the popular acclaim will be, you know, this is one of the best
1: leaders we've ever had. Paul Mason, thanks for talking with us today. See you soon. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, so even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday. Now at thenation.com/slash-edge-of-sports. <laughs> start making sense the nation podcast is co-produced by the la review of books and recorded at the studios of emerson college los angeles by ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from justin allen Alan minsky is our senior producer frank reynolds is our executive producer annie shields is our engagement editor katrina vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of the nation our theme music is from barcelona afrobeat licensed by creative commons Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One.